Well, uh, good morning. G'day, Bruce. Call me by name. Uh, my name's Danny, and I'd love to share some thoughts with you this morning. And I've been thinking about this, this word certainty. Uh, we're in this season, and the, the big poster or the banner that we've been seeing is just a big word with a, with a great um, scene in the background. Certainty, part two, Luke chapter two, three, and four. And that's got me thinking, what is certain in life? Can you describe certainty? What does it look like? What does certainly look like? Is there a type of person that's more certain than another? What does certainty feel like on the inside? Maybe if we were to struggle to define certainty, maybe we would uh, look at the opposite, which is what I, something that I enjoy doing. What does uncertainty look like? Can you describe it? Can you see it around you? Can you feel it? What does that feel like? What does this uncertainty feel like? I would probably struggle to define it to you, but I can very much tell you what it feels like. Christy and I were in Mexico, and we had two little children, um, three and three-year-old and six-month-old. And uh, on our way there to live, we discovered that for visa reasons, we could only stay in Mexico for three months, 90 days. Now, this was a bit of a surprise. We hadn't even left Australia, and we found out that we couldn't stay in Mexico for um, longer than we wanted to. We had planned to probably stay even um, twice that long, if not more, but 90 days is all we had. So as the day approached, we'd been there for three months And as the day approached, we realized that we needed to exit the Mexican border and then re-enter Mexico in order for the the visa to reinitiate, to start all over again. No worries. We thought in Melbourne Airport, let's okay, we'll just maybe take a flight to the US or we might even go to Canada. Who knows? It turns out that that rule excludes Canada, USA, and Mexico. So we couldn't go north. We had to go south. So south of Mexico is a country called Guatemala, and we had to pack our kids, and with my brother-in-law and a few other guys that were driving down for other reasons, we drove on Mexican roads for 12 hours. We had to stop numerous times, 10 or 12 times, um, at different roadblocks. Uh, at one point, the military got us all out um, of our car. They searched our car, they searched our stuff. We went back in and kept on going. Now, as we were approaching the border... Um, I, I could feel just the energy within me. My heart started racing. Um, and my, I, I started, my hands started sweating. You know, my voice started shaking. And I didn't like what we were getting into because I heard some stories. And uh, my brother-in-law dropped us off at, at the border of, of Mexico, and it was a bridge. So at this particular point, these two countries are divided by a river in this particular part of Mexico, And in order to cross the border, you physically have to cross the bridge, leave Mexico, cross the bridge into Guatemala. Okay, we'll we'll do that, no problems. We're in the the van, and the van hadn't even stopped. And already there's there's a group of guys surrounding the van wanting to offer their services, their border services. And so I looked at Christy, she looked at me, we took a deep breath and took one child each, opened the door. And there we were, surrounded by all these people wanting to help us out. By this point, we'd been used to things, so it was okay. Uh, we could manage this. But um, they wanted to 
uh, they wanted us to follow them into an office. And they asked for our passports. And by this stage, we're just going to go with the flow to see what happens. Two guys um, ended up just pestering us. So we handed our passports and they disappeared. They went somewhere. I don't know where they went. So we, here we are in no man's land, halfway through the bridge. Mexico's on this side. Guatemala's on this side. It started to rain. And I'm looking over the edge and I can see about 70 meters below, there's people just crossing the river. They're pulling across a fridge. There's a washing machine came in the other way. And there's, there's officials and they don't even care. They don't even notice. They don't want to look. So all this is happening and the two guys come back. The first thing I notice is none of them have the passports. So the energy, this nervous energy is turning to all sorts of things. A little word started to come in the back of my head and started to move forward. I can swear in Spanish. I have no problem swearing in Spanish. I can do it. And it started to come forward. And I was looking at these guys and I'm looking at Christy and I'm getting more nervous. And he st- one of them starts talking. One of them starts saying, oh, we've had problems. You know, uh, we, need, uh, we need you to come with us. Um, there's problems with your part. And I, I had enough. ¿Dónde están los pasaportes? I yelled out to them. I was furious at this point. The guy was so shocked, he, he reached into his pocket and handed four passports. <laughs> you know, two weeks ago, um, Chuck Morris over here uh, told us a story of his border encounter, and he doesn't even remember what happened in an in a interrogation room. But, um, yeah, that's uh, Andrew Morris, sorry. <laughs> he was a hero. He could do anything with a coat hanger and some toilet roll paper. I don't know. (laughs) If you go to his office, his tag says Chuck Morris, just so you know. So he doesn't remember anything, but I remember everything. I remember what I said. I remember my attitude. I remember the anger, the anticipation, the nervousness. I was caring for our kids. It was raining. And we had to, I, I just pushed them aside and I said, let me handle it. I'll do it. We get to the Guatemala counter, if you like, and I hand out the passports. He looks at the passports and he said, no, you can't be here. What you have to do is go over and get exit stamps from Mexico. So we crossed the bridge again to the other side and I found the counter of the Mexican border. We pay some money, which we knew we had to do. They stamped the exit stamps in our passports. We crossed the border again, the bridge to the Guatemala side, and we reached the same guy, hand over the passports, and I said... The stamps are there. Can you please stamp us in? Say, stamps us in. And I, and I go on to say, now can you put a, the exit stamp for Guatemala because we just want to go back over. Oh, no, we can't do that. I said, well, why not? Oh, there's a, there's a law that says that you have to stay in Guatemala three days. And I said, there's no such law. There's no such law. Can we please get I'll go and talk to my boss. He disappears for a few minutes and he comes back. And he says, no, you're right. You can get the exit stamps, but it's going to cost you. Una propina. And he's so cool, calm, and collected. And I don't even care at this point. I literally open my wallet and I hand over everything I've got, which is about 50 um, Australian dollars. And he says, thanks very much. Stamp, stamp the thing and, and we'll cross the border to the other side. I can tell you what uncertainty feels like. The relief when we jumped into that van and uh, headed on to, to the city that we were staying, we were visiting an orphanage while we were there. It was just a good opportunity to do so, run by some Aussie expats. 
And we were there for probably no more than five minutes. And uh, my heart's still racing and I'm just all shaky from that experience. Not there for five minutes and the ground starts shaking. And the hinges and the doors start shaking. And there's an earthquake. And all the kids in the playground just running and gather all into, into a huddle in the courtyard. And we're there and I'm looking at Christy going, we're experiencing an earthquake. And the earthquake was a long way away. There was no damage. Nothing bad happened. The uncertainty is real. I can tell you what that feels like. What's your experience with uncertainty? You know, um, we often think that being a Christian means that uncertainty is done, done with. It disappears. Well, I disagree with that. I think that being a Christian means that despite the uncertainty, there is something that remains firm. And that firmness is found in Jesus Christ. And uh, we have some technical problems, so I can't have the passage on the screen. So I'm going to read it. If you've got your devices or your Bibles, we're going to go to Luke chapter 4. And Ruth, last week, Ruth Morrison spoke about Jesus being tempted. And I'll refer to that a little bit later on. But I'm following on from that story. And it's, and it's um, titled, Jesus Rejected at Nazareth. And I'm reading from verses 14 through to, um, to 30, chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been, he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon or Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They gave up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. In a nutshell, Jesus returns to his hometown, his neighborhood, his, his, um, uh, the place where he grew up that he knew very well. People are curious to see him and anticipate what he's going to say. He goes to the synagogue, as was the custom for a rabbi. 
Uh, but after he speaks, they drag him and want to kill him. Something's happened before, after. Something's happened in the middle here. They were amazed, it says at one point. Next moment, they want to kill him. So what did Jesus say that made them so mad? It turns out Jesus was certain about a few things, more so than those he was speaking to. And so from this passage, I want to highlight three things to be certain about. The first one is God's word. The second one is the Holy Spirit. And the third one is Jesus' calling. Let's focus on God's word. From the beginning, God's word has been uh, something that has mattered profoundly to us as human beings. It It starts off in Genesis 1. We read it. God spoke, and what happened? There was light. God continues to speak, and things continue to come forth. In other words, God's word is life. God's word then becomes a promise to Abraham. Uh, From him, there would be a great nation. That was the promise that God gave him. Through Moses, God's word became, for Israel, a guide to live by. The law from God would set them apart as a nation compared to all other nations. And God wanted to use Israel as a way to say, this is how I want people to, to, to have a relationship with me. God's law, or also known as the decrees, or the commands were important to the psalmist who wrote these things in Psalm 119. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in, the following, in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. God's word mattered also to the Old Testament prophets. Now, God used these amazing men and women to remind Israel constantly of how they should live, what the relationship was about, but also how they should treat um, those that couldn't look after themselves, those that were foreigners. And it's sad, in a way, that God had to do that, that God continually had to remind people, Israel. But that's what he did through the prophets. God's word, moving on from the prophets, God's word is central to Jesus. Ruth highlighted last week um, how he used scripture. He knew the verses. He knew the Old Testament Bible and how he used scripture to defeat the devil's temptations. And we read in Matthew 4, 3 and 4, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread because he knew that Jesus was hungry. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus knew the certainty of God's word. So imagine this scene later on. Jesus stood in front of all those who loved God's laws. These were the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time. 
And as was this custom, they would invite the rabbi who was visiting. And every time they met in the synagogue, a passage was read. And then they would discuss it. They loved talking. They loved discussing. And Jesus reads Isaiah. And then he sits down, which was the custom. The person that sat down was the person that would begin to speak a a passage, a sermon about what has just been read. And at this point, they're okay with that. He finds the passage in Isaiah and and declares that it is being fulfilled in their hearing. At this point, they're not angry with him. They have no reason to be. It says that they spoke well of him. It also says that they were amazed. It's what he does next that makes them furious. Jesus uses God's word and makes it about himself. Oh, the rage. How dare he turn, um, he turn this treasured scripture, this piece of writing into something that is contrary to what we believe him. Get him out of here. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's throw him off. No wonder that for the rest of Jesus' ministry, they refused to believe in him despite all the miracles and wonders he performed. They refused to believe in what he said, let alone what he did. Moving on from Jesus, God's word was inspired and was recorded by authors. And we call this the Bible. And we often call it God's word as well. And we have that, this available to us today. And millions of people read it and are changed by it. God's word is certain. But it doesn't stop there because God's word continues to take shape, to take form today. No, we're not adding to the scriptures, to the Bible. But he speaks to us. We all know this. He speaks to us today. He speaks through other people. He speaks through scripture. How on earth... Would a family of four, a young family, sell their home and move to Mexico and immerse themselves in a culture? Where does that come from? It's not my idea of security and safety. But it comes from being changed by God's word, by being shaped, by being challenged. God's word matters. The Jesus-centered person knows the value of God's word and sticks to it. And you know why? Because God's central theme in his word is Jesus himself. So in other words, in God's story, Jesus is certain. And for me, no passage sums this up better than uh, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Which leads us to the Holy Spirit, the second thing. First thing is God's word. The second thing is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is certain. After his death and resurrection, the disciples were kind of anticipating, well, what's going to happen now? And Jesus promised his followers um, a gift. He He promises them his presence, his spirit, 
equipped with power to do things even greater than Jesus had done himself. We read uh, in the passage in Luke that Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. In Old Testament times, the process of anointing was an important part of God's declaration. It's like a way of telling everyone, um, letting everyone know that God approves, like his stamp of approval. And it was reserved for kings and, and prophets mainly. Now, um, an example could be Samuel. Samuel is called by God to anoint David as king of Israel. Now, when I read the, the passage, I automatically think of my experience with dad. When we were in Spain, um, I, when I was old enough, um, dad would go uh, and pray for people. And um, sometimes I would go with him. And I was curi- curious because um, he would carry in his pocket a little, little jar and in this little, little container, canister, he had some oil. And um, I remember in this, one, in this particular time, this, this lady's internal, um, um, his organs, I think it was kidneys or something, were shutting down. She was in really bad shape. And she was on, on the bed, and it was such a shock for me to see someone like this. And, and Dad sat next to her, explained to her non-Christian family uh, what he was about to do. She believed in Jesus and still does today, and he got this little, little jar and put a little bit of oil. And as he prayed, he just put it on her forehead as a way of testifying, as a way of saying, this matters. God, can you please come and be with this person? But in the old times, oil was not in a jar, but in container. So Samuel comes and anoints David and pours oil on his head. And I mean lots of oil. And it goes down through his beard and onto his clothes. Now David has to walk in front of all the people for all of them to see his approval. But imagine Israel at the time, a dusty place, maybe a windy place. It wasn't pretty. Oil was just everywhere. Imagine the wind and the dust, all the mess just through everything and on his clothes. And yet God is saying, this is the man that I want you to to look at. I approve of him as Samuel has has just done. Now, we don't do oil so much these days. Yes, it's still a ritual, a part of something that we believe in, but as a whole, we don't uh, appoint leaders and pour oil on them. But it still happens. How does it happen? It happens with the Spirit. It's the spirit that has taken over this material thing, this oil. And it's the spirit who comes on people and he anoints people. And God is saying, this anointing is for you. Jesus said, uh, the spirit has anointed me. But now Jesus says, the spirit has now anointed all those who have followed me. Think about it. How amazing is it? to think that God, through Jesus, approves of you and me. He approves of us and wants everybody else to know about it by the way we live our lives. He approves us by giving us his spirit. We don't need to walk around town with our head covered in all sorts of mess. We now have his presence to walk with, his Holy Spirit in us to walk with. 
and to direct our ways and to live out the type of kingdom Jesus was talking about. People ought to see that you are different. That is the certainty of our relationship with Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. Some people, though, treat the Spirit the same way a Jedi uses the Force. As they use him as a way of accessing power when they need it. The subtle difference, though, is that a Jesus-centered person knows that it's not about how he or she uses the Spirit, but how the Spirit uses them whenever he needs to, whenever he wants to. See the difference. Stop thinking like a Jedi and praying for the Spirit to come so that you can do these things. And start listening to the Spirit who's already talking to you about doing things that He wants you to do. And uh, in Romans 8, we, uh, there's a challenge for us when it comes to this tension of, do I live by the Spirit or do I live by what I know to be true, the things that I can see, the skin, the, the things that are, that are certain in my life. And Romans 8 says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. That's normal. It's natural. But those who live accordance with the Spirit have their minds on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Talk about certainty. What about those two words, life and peace? The Spirit does not create confusion. The Spirit does not create chaos or division. Instead, the Spirit seeks to glorify Jesus and is looking for people like you and me who are willing to be used for that purpose. Which leads nicely into the third thing. The first one was God's Word. The second one was the Holy Spirit. And the third one is this idea of calling. What is calling? Is it for nuns and for monks and for missionaries? Possibly. I was, uh, I, we introduced Ivy to the old movie now, Sister Act, over Christmas. And Whoopi Goldberg is, um, is um, like a performer who's in trouble. And um, the best thing they can figure out is for her to become a nun, pretend to be a nun. And she sits down to eat this meal. Who, she hates it, the look of it, and she doesn't want to taste it. And the nun next to her says, so when did you get your call? And she turns to her and she says, I, I, what call? What call are you talking about? No one's going, oh, the call, the call. Oh, yeah, and she makes up this story. That's not true. For some people, that call is very real, very tangible, part of our Christian faith. But for many of us, we're just not too sure of the call. But in fact, the big idea is that the call happens every day. It's in the ordinary it's in the mundane, in our day-to-day lives. And it happens over and over again. It's not just once, a once-off event. If it's a once-off event, then you, just, you would be in limbo, just waiting for the call. If it was a once-off event, then Jesus wouldn't bother coming as a baby. He would just have entered the earth, um, done the deed on the cross, come back to life and gone to heaven again. But he leads by example. And he says, time is important. And he says, days are important. And he says, it's all about the least of these. It's all about the oppressed. And he spent 
countless days it seems, healing people, talking to people, discussing things. Jesus, in Luke, is very sure of his calling. So on the one hand, Jesus read Isaiah and essentially made that passage about himself. His audience were amazed and spoke well of him. Maybe this Jesus guy, who's the son of Joseph, maybe this guy is going to be a good prophet and is going to do good things for Israel. Let's listen to what he says. But then Jesus flips on its head the text and he just completely um, shatters their perceptions. And he uses two specific stories from two specific prophets to hijack their assumptions. He speaks of Elijah and he speaks of the one who came after Elijah whose name was Elisha, who were called, but guess what? They weren't called to Israel. They were called to go outside of Israel on those two occasions. This completely shattered their minds. Why? Because Jesus is essentially saying the kingdom of God is not just for Israel. Guess what? The kingdom of God that I'm coming to proclaim is for those that are outside of Israel as well. It's for the Gentiles. God's vision would be fulfilled whether these super religious people liked it or not. All along, God wanted Israel to be a nation through which he would bless all other nations. Little did they know that this vision would embody a servant king, not a king like David. That's what they wanted, a mighty king that would overthrow the Roman Empire. And what did they get? They got a king who would be, um, would be um, persecuted in a sense. He would be attacked. He would be spat on. And ultimately, they would kill him. That's not our king. We don't want that sort of king. We want a powerful king. And in through all of this, Jesus, the servant king, teaches his disciples not only to love your neighbor, but to love your enemies as well. So calling is not just for the once-off event. Calling is in the everyday. And I came to the belief as I was preparing for this that the further you move away from Jesus, the more uncertain your life will become. So be warned. But that's not true at all. The Christ-centered person is the one who knows what is certain regardless of the periods of uncertainty. I know that to be true. It's not about position, it's about orientation. Who are you facing in times of uncertainty? It's not about living a Christian life that will have um, the least impact on your dreams, on your aspirations and your quality of life. It's about finding out what Jesus' vision is and doing that. And as we welcome back the, the Philippines team, I have a dream. Why? I'm allowed to dream. I wish that uh, we would constantly send people to the Philippines, to India, to Burundi, not just once a year, but constantly, every month, people coming and going and helping those that can't help themselves as a, day, as a, as a, a natural rhythm of our church. So how's your 
2016 shaping up. Can I remind you that tomorrow is February already? My January didn't, uh, we had a great time away as a, as a family just a week or so. But after that, it just sort of felt a bit clunky, inundated with all sorts of things. And it's quite appropriate that as we end January, we need to remind ourselves of what matters. God's word matters and he's certain. The Holy Spirit matters and he's certain. And Jesus' calling, which has become our calling, matters. At the end of the day, your sense of calling will be shaped by how certain you are about God's word and his Holy Spirit. In times of uncertainty, Jesus had left um, the disciples, um, had left the early Christians and times passed, and they faced a lot of challenges, significant challenges. And at one point, they decided that they ought to make a statement of faith, make a declaration as to what things they believed in. There were all sorts of heresies um, happening at the time. People were being persuaded. People were following this leader or that leader or this leader. They were saying all sorts of things. So these Christians sensed this uncertainty and they decided to make a statement of faith, make a declaration, and they wrote it down, known as the Apostles' Creed. And we sang it before, but I just want to read the Creed as we finish. I believe in God, the the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. But guess what? On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Why don't you stand with me? The creed goes on to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Church. I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, all life everlasting. Amen. Let's sing the whole song.